0: Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Elizabeth. Good afternoon, my friends. Is this on? Yeah. All right. Um, did you just say I'm, I'm about to preach the most famous sermon in the history of the world? <laughs> Jeez. Well, no pressure. Um, well, it's good to open God's Word with you again today. Um, I usually think that the first job of a sermon is to convince uh, people that are listening that the passage in front of them is relevant to their lives. Um, I don't, I don't, I, don't feel so, uh, I don't feel like that's so urgent today. I, I think this is, uh, I think this is something that, um, that we can all kind of nod our heads to in, in uh, acknowledgement that we, we need words like this. Um, that's not to say that everyone in this room st- struggles with sexual purity in the same ways or to the same degree but it is to say that if you live in the same world that I'm living in you literally cannot escape the barrage of temptation to break this commandment short of locking yourself in your bedroom without a smartphone without a TV without access to the internet without neighbors who walk by your window or memories of any of the above. God's word is eternally relevant. If I had to name two things that most characterize our culture right now, I would probably say anger slash hatred and sexual impurity. The very first two issues that Jesus names in this body section of his sermon. I think he's on to something. the destruction that has been caused in our world by sexual sin is simply devastating. The number of lives that have been destroyed by sexual perversion and exploitation and abuse and addiction and carelessness will probably go down as perhaps the most tragic statistic in all of human history. And the seed that gave birth to all of it, exists inside you and me. That's reason enough for every one of us to give Jesus' words the most respectful, urgent, trembling, humble, honest, careful attention we possibly can. And for that, we should pray. So please pray with me real quick. All seeing God, we need your words today. Some of us need your words to pierce our hearts and help us see our hearts with more honesty and clarity. Some of us need your words to cleanse us and deliver us from slavery to sexual sin. And all of us need your words to give us hope and healing and comfort and a renewed vision and power to live as disciples of Jesus are called and able to live by the power of the holy spirit that lives inside of us forgive us for sinning against you and heal us from the sins of others against us we desperately need you amen convinced that these words have relevance to each of our lives let's look at the passage in two sections uh, that I think just will help us pay attention to it a little bit more carefully. So two sections. First is the heart of sexual purity, and then the fight for sexual purity. So let's start with the heart of sexual purity. Back to verse 27. Please leave your Bible open, uh, if you will. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I guess we should start there. The people that Jesus was talking to that day had heard that you should not commit adultery. I'm not sure that's exactly our situation. You, Redeemer Community Church, and those gathered today in a church have probably heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but not nearly as many times or as loudly or as soul-numbingly as you've heard the exact opposite. You've probably heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but you've absolutely heard it said that it's actually not that big of a deal. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery is an outdated command. Old-fashioned, uninformed, aimed at denying you your personhood, your personal freedom, your right to self-expression and gratification. That's what we've heard. That's what we hear all the time everywhere we go. If you're a part of this church, by God's grace, you're living in a little culture that still holds to faithfulness and marriage as a big deal, but you're also living a whole lot of your life in a larger culture that says and believes the exact opposite. And unless you are Actively, or if I could take a cue from Jesus, unless you are violently resisting the onslaught, you are being shaped more by what the culture says than by what God's word says. It's the air we breathe in our culture. We're breathing it in, usually not even thinking about it, much less resisting it. So, let me adjust Jesus' words slightly, with his permission I trust, to meet us a bit more squarely. Despite what you've heard, despite what you see all around you, God's eternal word has always said and still says, you should not commit adultery. Every voice that tells you otherwise is lying to you and is not authoritative over your life. God's word is true, and God's word is authoritative, regardless of what our world thinks about it, regardless of what we even think about it. Adultery, which we can define as a sexual relationship of any kind with someone who's not your covenant spouse, is wrong. It's contrary to God's good design that goes back to the first couple pages of your Bible. And it's not wrong in a God is being stingy and holding out on us kind of way. That's kind of, that's actually the devil's original lie from the garden. It's wrong in a God is good and knows what's best for us kind of way. For all the noise and attention and celebration that our world likes to give sex, I hope you realize that God has a much higher view of sex than our world does. God, the inventor of human sexuality, has a higher view of human sexuality than our world does. Our world tells us that sex is everything. That it's the defining, most sacred aspect of who we are. And then it goes on to encourage us to treat our sexuality like it's not sacred at all. Like sexual relationships and encounters are trivial and not that big of a deal. It tells us that sexual freedom is sexual expression without boundaries. Though, for the time being, we still do have a couple largely agreed upon boundaries. But how many of our God-given appetites truly operate well without boundaries? Do our physical appetites for food work well without boundaries? Or does pretty much pretty much everyone agree that a somewhat disciplined diet actually leads to freedom and health. Do our physical appetites for sleep work well without boundaries? Or do most of us agree that sleeping all day doesn't actually lead to human flourishing? Let's just call out the lie. God's boundaries for our sexual relationships do not limit our freedom. They enable it. I had a professor in college who grew up in Los Angeles. And he went to an elementary school that didn't have room for a playground outside, so they built their playground up on the roof on the top of their building. And as you would hope, there was a strong, sturdy fence all the way around the perimeter of the roof where their playground was. My professor told us that not once... Did he feel like that fence around the playground limited his and his friends' freedom to play? Not once. In fact, he said the exact opposite was true. Because that fence was there, he and his friends felt very free to play ball, to play tag, to run wild without the constant fear of flopping over the top of the building. It's a beautiful picture of how God's law functions for us. The commands of God are not burdensome. They don't restrict our freedom. They enable it. They don't prevent our flourishing. They they promote it. When God puts limits on our sexual expression, he's not cruelly denying us our freedom and limiting our flourishing. He's wisely and lovingly protecting us and freeing us to live out that part of our humanity in accord with his goodwill. And remember, that's just a part of our humanity, not all of it. But his boundaries are good, and they're right. He's the creator and giver of every gift. He loves us more than we love ourselves, and he's so much wiser than us, and he sees everything so much more clearly than us. Satan says that God's boundaries for our sexual lives are old-fashioned and rob us of freedom. He says that the inventor of sex is a prude. He says that the creator of pleasure is a joy kill. He says that the designer of the human soul is oblivious to our real needs. Can we just acknowledge the madness in those statements? and yet we're susceptible to them. If we believe that God is the designer of human sexuality, then we have to believe that the boundaries he's given us are for our good, not to keep us from our good. And when it comes to sexual boundaries, I know that for some this is more difficult to hear and to believe than for others. All of our hearts can be tempted to argue against or defy God's boundaries, but I know that for some, this particular issue feels more painful and more sacrificial than it does for others. To some, it even feels like death. For some in this room, for a variety of reasons, the boundaries that God's word puts on our sexuality feel downright cruel and unfair. how can God's boundaries be good and right when I feel all these conflicting feelings? That's real. And I'm sensitive to that. And I promise you, our Lord is sensitive to that. And with compassion and confidence, I say to all of us that we never flourish by stepping outside of God's boundaries no matter how painful it is and how much it feels like it costs us. It's another hateful lie of our enemy that leads us to believe that our best life lies on the the other side of God's boundaries. In any area of our lives, certainly our sexuality. True freedom is not found by stepping outside of God's will. True freedom is found by those who say, Jesus, I feel this way, but I trust you more than my feelings. True freedom is found by those who say, not my will, but yours be done, no matter what it costs. True freedom is found by those who let Jesus define their humanity and their value. True freedom is found by those who are enslaved to righteousness and nothing else. And God's word makes clear from the beginning and is confirmed by Jesus in the words we have in front of us that his will is for his people to live lives of true and radical sexual purity. And like we saw with anger last week, if you were here, it's more radical than most people think. Jesus just finished clarifying how murder originates in the heart. And therefore, even angry and insulting words violate God's law. We see here in these next words that the same thing is true of adultery. It begins in the heart. So he says, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's not merely the decisive act that renders one guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. It's the glances, the staring, the thoughts, the dehumanizing desires that have already crossed the line into sin. Once again, Jesus levels the playing field with these words. Who's not guilty? We might again be tempted to ask, is that fair of God? Is he being overly strict here? Can anyone actually live up to this standard of purity? Would anyone even want to? I said last week that murder is a big deal because people are a big deal. The same is true here. Adultery is a big deal because people are a big deal. When you lust after another person who's not your spouse you're treating that other person as if he or she exists to give you some kind of pleasure. That person has become an object of your desire rather than another person who exists for you to love and serve. You're dehumanizing that person and you're dehumanizing yourself. According to Jesus, to be human, the right way, is to love God and love people. When we use people as objects for our pleasure and our gratification, the whole design is broken. So whether it's in anger or lust— Jesus is intolerant of any behavior that fractures relationships and abuses other human beings. We were created to love each other, not to use each other. To look at a woman with lustful intent means, first of all, obviously it doesn't mean that if a man is the object of lustful intent that it's not a big deal. This goes in, in every direction. But if we wanted to use different words to try to get at what Jesus means here, one scholar says we could say anyone who stares at a woman or a man in order to fuel sexual desire for her or him. Anyone who looks at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire for her. That's the idea behind lustful intent. Staring at, or I might add, with your eyes or with your imagination, staring at someone who's not your covenant spouse in order to fuel sexual desire for her. Jesus says that's already an offense against an image-bearer of God and against God himself. Not to mention the offense it is to your actual spouse or future spouse, if such a person exists. And because all sin is first and foremost against God, it doesn't even matter If that other person is consenting to or even inviting your lustful attention, it's still wrong. Jesus is saying the same thing he said about anger. True righteousness is a matter of the heart. The thoughts, desires, and motivations of your heart matter to God. And you can be guilty of adultery even if it never gets physical. Don't get mad at me, Jesus said. So when we talk about the heart of sexual purity, let's have two hearts in view. The purity of our hearts is front and center. The call is for us to live out a kind of purity that honors and loves and respects other people with our eyes, our thoughts, our imaginations, our words. But let's not miss the other heart involved in this command. Let's remember the heart of God who loves us, created us, knows who we are, knows how we struggle, knows how we flourish, and cares more about our joy than even we do. If we aren't sure about the heart of God in this matter, we're unlikely to take Jesus' next words very seriously, and it sounds like we ought to. So, with the good and wise and loving heart of God in view, let's look at the second part of this passage. First is the heart of sexual purity. Second section is the the fight for sexual purity. Let's read the rest of this passage again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The fight for sexual purity. Jesus isn't messing around. Because this is such a big deal, because so much harm and destruction come from stepping outside of God's boundaries for sexual relationships, Jesus says, do whatever it takes to keep yourself from being a part of this. The danger is extreme. The tactics are extreme. This isn't Jesus saying, try to stop. This is Jesus saying, run for your life. Bear in mind, Jesus is not interested in shock value. He's very interested in saving people from hell. Let's be clear about this. Maybe it's clear to you. Maybe it's not. Jesus does not endorse self-mutilation. The Bible itself does not endorse self-mutilation. Jesus is endorsing is radical warfare in the fight against sexual sin. Jesus is using graphic words that will burn themselves into our minds and wake us up to the urgency of the fight. And when he says, tear out your eye, chop off your hand, and throw them away, he means do whatever the heck it takes to keep yourself out of situations that lead you to sexual impurity. Whatever it takes. So without further ado, let's ask the question that we have to ask ourselves if our relationship with Jesus means anything to us. Are you taking your sexual purity as seriously as Jesus does. I'll repeat something I said last week that I think is very important. You have a wrong understanding of grace if it leads you to take your sin less seriously than Jesus tells you to. You're clinging to a cheap grace if your response to this teaching is, Jesus died for my sin, therefore I can keep dabbling in it for a little bit longer. That's just not the gospel Jesus preaches, right? Without a doubt, the radical standard of sexual purity demands nothing short of the grace of God to cleanse us from our sin. But for every disciple of Jesus, the call to sexual purity demands nothing short of radical warfare to keep us walking in that grace. So what does radical warfare look like for people living where we're living? We're obviously not the first people who have had to put up a fight, but I can't imagine the fight has ever required more top-to-bottom vigilance than it does for us today. Agreed? Obviously, our main application point from this passage is exactly what Jesus said. Tear out your eye, cut off your hands, do whatever it takes to avoid sin. That's our primary takeaway, but I'm going to sandwich it inside two other pastoral considerations that I'm pretty confident Jesus would agree with. So if you're a disciple of Jesus who needs to engage or re-engage the fight for sexual purity, here are three irreplaceable tactics for the fight. Number one, bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. Because like most of our sin, sexual sin thrives in the dark. In exactly the opposite way that the plants in your garden need sunlight in order to grow, your sexual sin needs darkness. It gains strength by remaining hidden. Darkness is Satan's playground. As long as an area of your life remains hidden, he remains active. And because of that, he uses all kinds of tactics to keep your sin hidden. Maybe for you, he tells you, it's not that big of a deal and you've pretty much got it under control. You can stop whenever you want. Lie. You are very much not in control. And its grip is growing stronger on you by the day. Maybe for you, he tells you that no one else will understand. Your struggle's unique. If you tell anyone, they're going to freak out and run away. Lie. Anyone who's honest with the realities of their own heart and knows the grace of God will not be surprised by your personal struggle. Maybe for you, he tells you that you've tried bringing it to the light before and it didn't work. You still struggle. What's the point of enduring the humiliation all over again for no reason? Lie. He's got you right where he wants you. Denying the possibility of future grace by making you question the grace you've known in the past. Satan will gladly help you stay too busy, too tired, too isolated, too ashamed, too numb, too hopeless to bring your struggle into the light. Gladly. He'll do anything to convince you to keep your sin hidden because he knows that when the light shows up, he has to flee. You literally take weapons out of your enemy's hands when you confess your sins to God and others. This is where you start. Bring your struggle into the light. If you don't have anyone in your life that you can talk to about these things, please don't leave here today without asking about how you can get involved in something like a fellowship group where these are the topics of conversation regularly. If you are in a fellowship group and these conversations aren't happening regularly, lead the way in bringing things into the light, disarming the power of the enemy and encouraging your friends to do the same. You're not the only one who needs it. If you're in a fellowship group and you just don't go very much, please consider whether Satan has you right where he wants you. This is precisely the reason we value small group fellowship so much. Satan loves getting us alone and he will patiently blow out one candle at a time until it's pitch black and he can move freely in our lives. Bring it into the light. Start today. Second tactic, starve it out. Starve it out. This is the tear out your eye, cut off your hand. Take any wise steps that will keep you far from temptation and danger. It's better that you lose one of your members' body parts than that your whole body go into hell. Follow Jesus' logic here. There is nothing worth having, keeping, watching, doing if it puts your soul in danger. There is nothing worth having, keeping, watching, doing if it puts your soul in danger. Settle it in your soul right now. It's going to feel countercultural and probably super inconvenient. Not a surprise. Our world wants to gorge our sexual desire. Jesus says starve it out. Don't give it the things that feed it. Don't give it the things that make it stronger and stick around longer. This touches almost every part of our lives where we live, right? Let me just highlight a couple that I think probably cover a lot. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I'm getting very practical here because I think Jesus gives him permission to when he starts talking about like chopping off hands and tearing out eyes. (laughs) If you're a disciple of Jesus, there are probably just a lot of things you shouldn't watch, you disciple of Jesus, there's just probably a lot of things you shouldn't watch that everyone else seems to watch. How do you make your viewing decisions? What are you willing to tolerate in order to be entertained? You might be the exception, but I don't believe most people who tell me that they aren't affected by the sexual content in the movies and the shows that they watch. What does happen is we become desensitized and our hearts grow hard towards things that grieve the heart of God, and it feels like we're not being affected, because we already are. Maybe it's the things you let yourself read or listen to. Because if the offense happens in our hearts long before it ends up in a bed or somewhere else, we need to be vigilant about what we let influence our hearts. Are you going to be painfully out of touch if you don't watch all that Netflix and HBO have to offer? I sure hope so. As James 4.4 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then there's the problem of our stupid smartphones. Danger has never been closer or more accessible. We are walking around with fire in our pockets. I believe there are very few human beings who should have a smartphone that has zero protective measures on it. You might be strong ninety nine percent of your life. That's awesome. When that one percent shows up, just the right, just the right congruence of circumstances, Satan will be there. One percent. He's ready. Filters, passwords, protective software, whatever it takes to protect you from the dangers that lurk around every corner on your little phone. And if those things aren't enough, get a dumb phone or a landline. Get a landline. Let's be a church that goes back to landlines if we have to. I'll call you. How lame and inconvenient would that be, right? Sort of like cutting off your hands but way less lame and inconvenient than your whole body getting thrown into hell, I assume. If you're honest with yourself, how much of what you view online adds even a little bit of fuel to the fire of sexual desire? I think Jesus would advise you to reconsider what you tolerate. If you belong to him, you are called to fight, not compromise. I've heard frustrated people tell me that they are waiting on the Lord to give them the freedom from their struggles with lust. I understand. I do believe that the Lord brings freedom in this battle, but it might not be as passive of a deliverance as we like to think. Jesus doesn't tell us to wait until our hearts change and our desires are pure. He says, go on the offensive. Start hacking away at everything that feeds your life. Other New Testament writers understood this and said the same thing. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, a few verses that I think will show up above my head. Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And again in Ephesians 5.3, it says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, God's people, as is proper among saints. And very in line, I think, with what Jesus said, uh, when Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes in Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, as Jesus warned us before that, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If our warfare isn't radical, we're not taking God's word seriously. I want to say a word specifically to young people in the room. Hello, young people. I hope you've been listening to all of this, but hear, hear this very clearly. Be wise here and take God's word seriously. And like I often say to you, avoid avoidable trouble. You have to learn to live your life like it's a never-ending war. You have to learn to fight like your life depends on it. Satan will want you to believe that a little impurity here and a little impurity there is no big deal. You'll be able to stop when you want to. He wants you to believe that all the hilarious and interesting content on your phone or computer is mostly harmless and it's not shaping you, and it's not leading you anywhere. It's not true. It's just not true. He's lying. He's good at it. He's been doing it a long time. You haven't been avoiding lies for as long as he's been telling lies. Satan is not interested in teenagers who look at sexualized videos every once in a while. He has a far grander plan for your life. He's leading you down the path of ruthless addiction that will have the ability to destroy everything that matters to you. He wants you to grow into a man or woman who's so gripped by sexual slavery that you live a life of complete deception, you destroy your family, you devastate the ones you love most, you have zero healthy relationships. You live in isolation. You become a shell of a human being. You drag the name of Jesus through the mud and you burn with sexual, unquenchable sexual lust forever. And if that sounds overly dramatic to you, it's because he wants you to think I'm being overly dramatic. But I've been young and now I'm less young. And I promise you, the danger is real, and the danger is yours. Don't get caught in the grip. You cannot take it too seriously. And if you're already in the grip, bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. I plead with you, don't keep this a secret. Start fighting There are lots of people in this room who would lovingly, graciously, and understandingly come alongside you as you seek to live your life, your teenage years, as very few teenagers on this planet are seeking to live them. There's plenty more that could be said and should be said about starving out lust by depriving it of what it feeds on, but I'm going to leave that to you and your conversations with each other. Dig deeper into it together and get personal about it. But very briefly, the third tactic that we need to take in the fight against sexual purity is renew your mind. Renew your mind. Most of us, whether we realize it or not, have minds that have been far more influenced by the world than we think. We have lower views of sexuality than God does. We view other people as objects more than we realize We've been desensitized and care less about righteousness than we should. So along with bringing it into the light and starving out our lustful desires, we also need to fill our minds with what is true. We've been conformed to the image of this world and we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to constantly think about and meditate on and talk about what God's word says is true about our sexuality, what God's word says is true about other people, and what God's word says is true about the heart of God. We are shaped by what we give our attention to. And perhaps we are most shaped by what we give most of our attention to. Because we live in a sex-obsessed culture, we need to live with a truth-obsessed posture. Blessed is the man or woman who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, Psalm 1 tells us. Search God's word for specific truths that combat the specific lies that you're tempted to believe. They're there, I promise. Search God's word for the heart of God himself. The creator of your sexuality. The creator of those other people made in his image. Memorize passages that can be like a sword at your side for the moment of temptation. Hear the counsel of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You guys know that in here is what's honorable and just. What's pure and lovely and commendable and excellent. It's in here. And Paul exhorts us again in Ephesians 4. He says, he exhorts us to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And he says, Be renewed in the spirits of your mind, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We don't read the Bible because we think it keeps us on God's good side. We read the Bible because we're in constant need of renewing grace. We abide in God's word because that's how Christians fight. Brothers and sisters, let's fight like we mean it. Like Matthew wrote at the end of chapter 4, the words that we've just looked at are part of Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Even the words we just looked at. Jesus said in verse 17 that he came to fulfill the law of God. And as far as the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery goes, he did that. Jesus fulfilled that by being the only one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never married during his earthly life, but he never looked at another person with lustful intent. He never had wandering eyes, He never had a careless imagination. He never objectified another human being. He never viewed another person as a means to a selfish end. Jesus fulfilled God's command against adultery because you and I haven't. And then Jesus paid the penalty for our sin when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. So now anyone, the Bible says, who trusts in Jesus receives the grace that we so desperately need to be counted righteous before God and the grace we so desperately need to walk in righteousness before God. It's what Paul meant when he said that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Even though he knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He took your guilt for your adulterous heart and he says, and I'll give you my righteousness. It's yours before God and it's yours to walk in right now. This is why we finish every service by celebrating the Lord's Supper like we're going to right now. If you're serving, please start making your way forward. We celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection every week because for those of us who are united to Jesus by faith, it's also our death and resurrection. Jesus put our sin to death so that we could walk in newness of life, the kind of life he's describing in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're here and you're not living by faith in Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. And I want to tell you in a couple of minutes, people are going to get up out of their rows and they're going to walk down and they're going to take these weird little cups and put things in their mouth. And I want to encourage you to stay in your seat when that's happening. You don't need to get up and go, no one's going to judge you for staying in your seat. Um, but this is something that is a part of walking in fellowship with Jesus. And it's for those who uh, trust in him by faith. But as you're sitting in your seat, I would encourage you take a few minutes and reflect on your life. Maybe even reflect on these words that uh, Jesus has given us. Maybe this specific category of heart-level adultery that Jesus says is such a big deal before God. I'd invite you to just consider that before God for a couple minutes while people are doing their thing. The people that are coming up and doing their thing are not better than you in any way. They've just come to the conclusion that Jesus is their only hope. And you're invited to do the very same thing today. There will be people at the back of this room that want to pray with you, with anyone here, and um, I just want to commend that as something that um, don't leave good stuff on the table. If somebody's here that wants to pray for you and you're somebody who needs prayer, um, walk back there and ask somebody to pray for you, whoever you are, wherever you're at. Maybe that's the first step even of you bringing things into the light. So don't waste that opportunity for grace. But brothers and sisters, those who are living by faith in Jesus, as we come to receive the body and the blood of Jesus given for us, hear again the good news of the kingdom. In a world where sexual norms are determined by human feelings and reasoning, in a world where sexual carelessness has chipped away at countless human souls, in a world where sexual appetites have been gorged and enslaved the masses, in a world where sexual whims have torn families apart. In a world where sexual perversion has exploited and abused and left for dead. In a world where sex is everything and people are objects. In a world where sex is God and people have become so very confused. Jesus says his kingdom's different. He says his people are different. Come and be healed, and then go and be healers. This is the gospel. All of our sexual brokenness, all of our sexual confusion will one day be former things. And if you're with Jesus, you're already part of the solution. You may come.